Sunday. If, uh, for the rest of us, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We're looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. It's page 1007 in the Pew Bible. Instructions. 
So, you know, most of us have all kinds of reasons why we either don't want to live that kind of life, or even if we might want to live that kind of life, maybe we don't have $1,000 a month per person in our family for a food budget, or whatever it would cost. Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century philosopher from Denmark, wrote this. A follower is, or strives to be, what he admires. An admirer, however, keeps himself personally detached. And he goes on to say, Christ, at the beginning of his work, had many admirers. But his whole life on earth, from beginning to end, was destined only to have followers and to make admirers impossible. You see, the question that this passage we're reading confronts us with is, are we followers of Jesus, or are we merely admirers of Jesus? Are we people who have been so gripped by him that we are seeking to pattern our lives after his, or do we merely admire him from a distance and then go our own way? So what we see in this passage is we see a picture of Jesus' obedient followers in verses 1 to 7. We see a picture of Jesus' enthusiastic admirers in verses 8 through 11. And then we see Jesus himself. So I want to look at these three sort of groups of people in the story. His followers, his admirers, and then to look at Jesus himself. So first, let's consider Jesus' followers as they appear in this story. Now, this story is usually called the triumphal entry. Uh, it appears in each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of the Gospel writers emphasize some different details. Uh, in Mark, this is a pivotal moment in the story because the first eight chapters of Mark are set in Galilee, primarily, which was up in the north of Israel. That's where Jesus was born and, uh, or raised in Nazareth. Uh, that's where his family was from, and then he was in Capernaum. All those places are up in Galilee, around the sea, sort of big lake of Galilee. But then, in chapter 8, Jesus and his followers start journeying down toward Jerusalem. And this is where they finally arrive. They finally arrive at their destination, where he's, which is also going to be where his life ends, and where he rises from the dead. Now, Mark particularly, one of the details that Mark particularly emphasizes, even more than the other gospel writers, is the obedience of Jesus' disciples and the reliability of Jesus' words. So, verses 2 to 3, Jesus gives specific instructions to his disciples, and then, in verses 4 to 7, they follow them precisely. And it almost even feels a little repetitive, but that's intentional, because Mark is trying to show us the obedience of Jesus' followers. So, there's four commands Jesus gives— Verse 2, go into the village. Verse 4 says they went. Verse 2, untie the colt. Verse 4 says they untied it. The end of verse 2 says bring it, bring the colt. And verse 7 says they brought the colt to Jesus. And four, verse 3 says if anyone asks you what you're doing, say this. And verse 6 says they told them what Jesus had said. So everything Jesus tells them to do, they do. Quite 
And Jesus says in verse 3, somebody might ask you what you're doing. And guess what? Verse 5, some people ask them what they're doing. Now, there are many other details that Mark doesn't tell us. So we don't know which disciples Jesus sent, which village they went into, who owned this cult, whether Jesus had made prior arrangements with the owners of the cult. He certainly could have. The Gospel of John indicates Jesus had already been in that area for at least a day or two, maybe quite a bit longer. Or did this all unfold more spontaneously? After all, a king had authority to conscript animals for his own purposes. We don't know how much Jesus told his disciples in advance about his plan to ride into the city or his reasons for doing so. So there's lots of details that Mark either didn't know or chose not to tell us in his story. But he does emphasize that Jesus' disciples obeyed exactly what Jesus told them to do and that Jesus' word could be trusted. That things unfolded just like Jesus foresaw. Now, uh, Jesus' disciples obey him even though there was much that they didn't yet understand about Jesus. So if you look back in the last couple of chapters of Mark, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, there's three times where Jesus tells his disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to suffer and be killed. And every time his disciples say, well, the first time, one of his disciples says, no way. Peter says, no way. Jesus says, uh-uh, no, I'm going, you follow me, not I follow you. Uh, let's get an order here. The second time, it just says they said nothing because they were afraid to ask him about it. And the third time, they say nothing and they get in a fight with each other. They start squabbling among the disciples about which one of them is the greatest. So clearly, the disciples have really no understanding about why Jesus is going up to Jerusalem and why he's going to suffer and die on a cross. There's all kinds of things they don't understand that they'll only understand later on. But here, they don't always, but here, they obeyed, even though they had a limited understanding of who Jesus was and what he had come to do. Now, stepping back, right, thinking about our own lives, all of us have some limits in our understanding of Jesus, right? We might look back and say, I've learned some things about Jesus that I didn't know several years ago, but, but all of us still have more to learn about him. Um, but as we obey what we know about Jesus, as we obey what we see that he's clearly told us to do, then we, we will see that his word can be trusted. Uh, let me share one way that this pattern has played out in my own life as a pastor. So most often, except for occasional Topical or seasonal sermons, like today we're sort of looking at a, a passage for Palm Sunday, um, but previously we've been going through the book of Mark section by section. And so normally I, that's how I preach through books of the Bible, is one section at a time without skipping any. And one of the results of teaching the Bible that way is that every so often I have to preach on a Bible passage that I would probably never choose to preach on my own, just randomly on a one-off basis. And some of you, if you've been here, I've only been here for several months, but some of you have heard a couple of sermons uh, that I've preached on, on some passages that were challenging and that I probably wouldn't have chosen to deal with um, because.
because they're hard, uh, or they're hard to explain, or they're controversial, and my natural tendency is to avoid conflict. Uh, now, I, I, I've learned over time that's not always the wisest thing to do, and so I'm more willing to take the bull by the horns than I used to be, but growing up, uh, and sort of uh, as a young adult, that was that was definitely my natural tendency. If I, you know, if we can sort of manage things without hitting hard things head on, then I'll do that, right? So, uh, so sometimes I have to preach from a part of the Bible that either I've read before and I feel like I have some questions about myself or I have trouble understanding, and then I have to figure out how to explain it to you all. But here's the thing that I found. Sometimes those hard parts of the Bible that I might never dare to preach on if I just chose a random text each week, sometimes those end up yielding insights that are particularly sweet for me as I'm preparing. And sometimes people have come up to me afterwards and said, that was really helpful. And I thought, well, gosh, I wouldn't have chosen to preach that on my own. But it's only because I'm committed to preaching through the whole Bible uh, because I believe that God has given us the whole Bible. I, I think of this one story that I sort of think of that reflects a little bit of my own experience is the story of Jacob. And if you are familiar with the story of Jacob, uh, he has this very intense experience where he wrestles with the angel of the Lord all night. He's preparing to meet his brother, there's a whole context to the story, but he wrestles with the angel of the Lord all night, which is a very intense and draining and, and experience, and in the morning, he walks away with a limp, in other words, he's been humbled by God, but also with a blessing, in other words, he's been affirmed by God, and so I wonder if you've had an experience like that where you wrestled with God and his word, and one of the things Jacob says is, I'm not going to let you go, Lord until you bless me. All right? Have you wrestled with God in his word and not let it go, even though it's hard and maybe intense or draining and, and, and hard to think about how does this, how can I accept this and live by this and receive this even though it's hard and against the grain of my natural tendency, but in the end you end up, you find you've been humbled and you've been deeply affirmed by God, by encountering the true God in his word. So Jesus' disciples obeyed, and as they obeyed, they saw that Jesus' words can really be trusted. And I hope that you have that experience, too. Uh, now, also, at the end of the day, verse 11, after the crowd disperses, the disciples are still with Jesus. As it was late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus' disciples, despite their limited understanding, obey him and stay with him. So that's the picture we see of Jesus' followers obey him even though they don't fully understand him and they stay with him at the end of the day. But we also see a much larger group of people in verses 8 through 11. Jesus' enthusiastic admirers. Verse 8 says many spread their cloaks on the road. Others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And there were those who went ahead and those who followed who were shouting, Hosanna. Uh, Gospel of John specifies that some of these leafy branches were palm branches. So that's where we get Palm Sunday is John 12, verse 13, specifies that detail. And again, what, is, what does it mean? Spreading their cloaks on the road. They're sort of laying out the red 
for Jesus. In the Old Testament, there's one reference to King Jehu when he was crowned king of Israel. And it's in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. It says, people spread their garments on the ground and proclaimed, Jehu is king. And Peter mentioned this earlier in the service, but 200 years before Jesus, the, uh, a military leader named Simon the Maccabee had driven out the enemies of Israel and conquered Jerusalem and sort of set up an independent uh, independent um, uh, state. And it says, the Jews entered with praise and palm branches with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. So the crowds are excited about Jesus. They're treating, they're honoring him sort of like a king or a military leader or some kind. And they're celebrating his arrival. And they shout, Hosanna. Now that word, Hosanna, uh, was, had sort of become a shout of praise, sort of like hallelujah is. Uh, but what the word really means in Hebrew is it means save us. So they're actually quoting that psalm that we read at the beginning of the service, where it's in verse 25, so it's the next to last verse, if you sort of look at the front of your bulletin, um, where it says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And that word save us in Hebrew is Hosanna. So as the crowds are seeing Jesus come to Jerusalem, they're saying, save us. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the next verse in the psalm. So they're quoting this psalm. Now, it was a psalm that was regularly sung during the Passover feast. And it was commonly recited as sort of a blessing upon pilgrims coming to Jerusalem in the name of the Lord. Blessed are you who come in the name of the Lord. So the crowd is very enthusiastic about Jesus. They're shouting, singing. It's like a big victory parade. But notice that the crowd only affirmed Jesus in rather vague and general terms. It's not quite clear who they thought he was or what they thought he would do. So they say, verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's, it's expressing some hope that somehow, some way, David's kingdom would be restored. But it's not really clear who they were expecting Jesus to be. The reality is, this crowd probably had a range of different expectations. Some people might have been celebrating Jesus' arrival because they had heard or seen his, heard about or seen his miracles. And they were hoping that he would do more miracles. But those people would be disappointed because after Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he does very few miracles. In fact, Mark only records one miracle that Jesus does after this point in the story. Uh, he doesn't any healings or any exorcisms. Jesus had healed and delivered many people, but that's not why he had come to Jerusalem. Now, others might have been hoping that Jesus would lead a military uprising, an independence movement, sort of like Simon the Maccabee had done 200 years ago. They wanted Jesus to drive out the hated Roman government who had oppressed the people of Israel for decades. But the expectations of those people would also be disappointed because that's not why Jesus came to Jerusalem either. He did not come to lead a military revolt. He did not come to kill his enemies, but rather to die for his enemies. And of course, there are probably some people who joined in just because it was a parade. Right? And sometimes a parade 
is a break from the monotony of daily life. It's exciting, it's an event, it's entertainment. So, sure, let's join in. There's all kinds of things that people do because it just makes them feel like I got a break from the boring on and on routine of daily life. But here's the thing, this whole big crowd with all their different expectations of Jesus, this whole big crowd disappeared just as quickly as it had gathered. All right, you're reading verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. It seems like the tension's building, the excitement's building. There's all this enthusiasm and all this shouting. And then verse 11 says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple and looked around at everything and went back out to Bethany with the twelve. Nothing happens! There's all this shouting and all this excitement, and then the crowd disappears. The crowd of enthusiastic admirers was gone. Now, last week we looked at a parable that Jesus told, a parable about the sower. And I think the enthusiastic crowds here are very much like the second group of people in that parable. Basically, in that parable it describes seed sown on rocky ground that springs up very quickly but when the hot sun comes it doesn't have any root and so it withers and dies just as quickly as it has sprung up and that describes the crowd here the enthusiastic admirers uh, the, the crowd's enthusiasm sprang up quickly but it was only temporary and it didn't last you know, many people, for some part of their life, become enthusiastic admirers of Jesus. They might be singing, shouting, praising, full of enthusiasm and emotion, joining in with a big crowd. Now, enthusiasm and emotion aren't bad things, but by themselves, they're not enough to sustain faith in Jesus over the long haul. It's a little bit like eating candy. Right? No child will grow into a mature, healthy adult only or primarily by eating candy or desserts. And similarly, you won't grow up into a mature and healthy Christian by subsisting on enthusiasm and excitement and emotional experiences. No, the way you'll grow mature is by feeding on God's Word, by listening to Jesus. 1 Peter 2, verse 2 says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed that you have tasted, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, there's a place for appropriate enthusiasm and emotion and excitement that flows out of a deep understanding of who Jesus is. But enthusiasm and emotion all by themselves like a fire without fuel, and it eventually just burns itself out. Now other people uh, are attracted to Jesus like the crowds were here, but they have their own agenda. Just like some people in the crowd just wanted miracles, and some just wanted political revolution, and some just wanted personal entertainment. But you know, Jesus doesn't cater to every desire and whim of his admirers. 
Jesus doesn't always give us what we want. You see, Jesus is not a means to another end. He's the one through whom and for whom we were created. A long time ago, Augustine wrote, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You see, sometimes people are attracted to Jesus, but they have their own idea of who they want Jesus to be, and Jesus says, no, I haven't come to fulfill all your own ideas of what you want me to be, but I have come to be the rest for your souls that you need and long for at the deepest level. Do you realize that God made us for himself and that our hearts, there is a restless ache in all of our hearts that will not be healed except by God himself. And that's why Jesus came, is to connect us to God himself. So this passage shows us obedient disciples, enthusiastic admirers, and third, I want to end by looking at Jesus himself because he's really the main character in this story. Not the crowd, not the disciples, not the crowds, but him. Jesus, the solitary Savior. Now you might say, what do I mean by calling Jesus a solitary Savior? Isn't Jesus surrounded by people throughout this passage? His followers, his admirers. Yes, he is. But if you look at this whole passage, Jesus alone is leading the way. And only Jesus really understands what he's doing. Notice that from beginning to end, Jesus initiates all the action. Verse 1, he sent his disciples into the village to get the colt and gave them detailed instructions how to find it. Verse 7, he sat on the colt and rode on it as he approached the city. And verse 11, he entered into the city and went into the temple. So Jesus initiates all the action. The crowds, the disciples, they just respond to what Jesus is initiating. And at every step of the way, only Jesus fully understood what was going on. Now, what Jesus did here would have seemed strange and surprising to everyone around him. Riding a donkey's colt into Jerusalem as the Passover feast was about to begin. You see, this is the only time recorded in any of the Gospels where Jesus rides on an animal. Everywhere else Jesus goes, he walks. The only other thing mode of transportation he took was a boat to get across the lake on a couple of occasions. So his disciples would not have been expecting him to ride on a colt. And pilgrims who were traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover would have expected him to walk into the city because pilgrims were expected to enter the city on foot unless they were physically unable to. You know, at many times in Jesus' ministry, Jesus sort of avoids crowds and sought to avoid their attention. But here, he attracts a crowd. He does something that intentionally attracts people's attention. You might say, why? Why did Jesus act in this strange and surprising way? Even to the point of borrowing someone else's cult in order to do it. Now, Mark doesn't tell us Directly, what was in Jesus' mind, but he drops a couple of hints. And the hints would have been picked up by people who knew the Old Testament. You 
down to the New Testament. And you can only fully understand the New Testament uh, and fully appreciate it by understanding and digging into some of that Old Testament background. So notice the cult. Four times Mark mentions this cult. Verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, verse 7. And if you search the Old Testament, you can go to BibleGateway.com and you can search the whole Bible for any word you want. And if you go there and search for cult in the Old Testament, you'll find it, depending on the translation you're looking at, between three and six times. It's not a common word. There's not a lot of verses in the Old Testament about donkeys, cults. But two of those verses are prophecies about the Messiah. First one is Genesis 49, verse 10, which says, The scepter, that means the ruler's sword, will not depart from Judah, the tribe of Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt, to the choicest branch. So there's a reference to the promised king in the line of Judah tying up his colt. And interestingly, the colt is tied up in this story. And then Zechariah 9, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt. So even before the time of Jesus, Jewish scholars had read both of these passages and concluded they're talking about Messiah to come. The Messiah will ride on a colt. And Zechariah tells us the meaning of the colt. Your king is coming to you humble or gentle and mounted on a donkey. You see, normally kings would ride on horses if they were charging into battle, or they would ride in chariots, sort of like famous people ride in limos these days. But Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem on a war horse. And Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem in a deluxe chariot. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. Because he had come to be the humble king. He had come not to be served, but to serve. And give his life as a ransom for many. And you see, when he rode into that city, those crowds shouted, Hosanna, save us! And they spoke better than they knew. Because that's exactly what he had come to do. He had come to answer that cry in the very deepest sense of the word. But of course, only Jesus understood the sacrifice that will be necessary to bring about that salvation. You see, on Palm Sunday, Jesus' admirers and Jesus' followers had all kinds of ideas in their heads about what they wanted Jesus to do and be in Jerusalem. But guess what? None of them wanted or expected him to end up nailed a cross just a few days later. You see, Jesus alone led the way. Last week I read a devotional that contained these words. <clears throat> Every one of us walks a lonely path in some way, at some point in our life. When we struggle to carry a heavy burden, sometimes feeling like it is an impossible task. Sometimes this weight is given to us by others. Voices upon us, we carry it with pain, with compassion, with anger, with frustration, with kindness. You see, the message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ walked the ultimate lonely path. Jesus Christ carried the burden that no one else could help him carry. He carried the weight of the sin of the world. He carried the
punishment that we deserved. He carried our sins to the cross, and he did it with perfect love, and perfect obedience, and complete steadfastness. There's an old hymn that goes like this. It says, Alone thou goest forth, O Lord, in sacrifice to die. Is this thy sorrow not to us who pass unheeding by? Grant us to suffer with thee, Lord, that as we share this hour, thy cross may bring us to thy joy and resurrection power. You see, more than anything else, Palm Sunday is an invitation to follow Jesus all the way to the cross. Not just to shout and celebrate and have a good day and have a good time, but to see why he came. That he rode into Jerusalem be the king, to be the Messiah, and to be the suffering servant who paid for our sins. It's an invitation not just to be an admirer on the roadside for a day, but to become his follower. Let's pray. Almighty God, in your great love for the human race, Send your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our nature and to suffer death upon the cross, giving us the example of his great humility. Mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering and also share in his resurrection. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever. Amen.